Visit our website at oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 200 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Maxine. I'm Maxine, a compulsive overeater. And I realized when I looked at the calendar a couple of days ago that it was September. And uh, I realized it was the anniversary of the month I came at Overeaters Anonymous, which was in 1961. <sighs> it's a long time ago. <laughs> uh, I was just telling um, somebody that um, my oldest daughter just had her 50th birthday, and I can't realize, I don't, or haven't realized that I have a middle aged daughter. And. Uh, Considering I always consider myself 39, it's a pretty big miracle. <laughs> but anyhow, I once heard at a meeting that if you have a wonderful day and you abstain, that's a good day. And if you've had a terrible day and you abstain, it's a great day. Well, I've had a great week. <laughs> um, unfortunately, my, uh, my husband's sister died. And uh, one of the things I uh, fears that I had before I came into this program was um, I hated hospitals. I had a great fear of them, and when my grandmother was very ill, the woman who raised me, I was too afraid to go see her in the hospital before she died. And that was one of the biggest regrets I had, and uh, it was also one of the things that I had to make amends for um, later in my program. And uh, I didn't want to go, and I had good reasons that I didn't want to go because I wasn't feeling well, but I wasn't feeling well because I didn't want to go. So I did counteraction that this program has taught me to do, and I went. And I'm very glad that I did because I could really say goodbye to her. And uh, yesterday was the funeral. And um, it's been a hard week. It's been a sad week. Uh, and the miracle of it is that it has made no difference in the way I abstain. Uh, I came into Overeaters Anonymous in 61, uh, out of control, just uh, that last year. Uh, my father uh, died and I couldn't go to his funeral because I was threatening to abort my second daughter and was uh, restricted to bed rest. Um, my father, uh, my grandmother died, who, raised, who helped raise me, and I gave birth to my second daughter, and in that whole year, I never shed a tear. Because when people asked me how I was, I was always fine. And you know what fine, the acronym for fine is, it's fucked up, insecure, neurotic, and eating. And that's what I did. I only had two, two emotions. I was either sad or glad or mad. That was three. God, I had one more than I thought. Um, but that's how I was. I never was in touch with what I put into my mouth had anything to do with what my actions were. And so um, I came into Overeaters Anonymous in September because uh, after my, um, I had given birth to my second daughter, um, I had what we now would call postpartum syndrome. Uh, in those days, they just thought it was you were just depressed or you just needed a vacation and you needed uh, hormones or whatever you needed, and nothing worked except that uh, they <clears throat> after nothing worked, they sent me to a psychiatrist, and I spent uh, six weeks, three times a week seeing him, and he said, I'm not here to solve all your life's problems. I'm just here to get you over this crisis. And so he said he was going on vacation, but I thought he really was trying to get rid of me. So um, I was left with my... Uh, eating habits, I had got, lost a lot of weight after um, my daughter was born because I, when I was depressed, I couldn't figure out how to eat and cry at the same time. So I had lost quite a bit of weight, but after I started to feel better, guess what? The compulsion again returned like it always had before. 
Uh, my eating um, experience is really kind of boring. It's probably all like the rest of you, except uh, I've missed all the good stuff since 1964. <laughs> um, it's all the same stuff, by the way, only today it's just a little more technically challenged and a little more expensive, and uh, it's always fast, supposed to be fast and quick and easier, softer way. And um, OA, I thought, was like that, uh, but I learned that uh, without the steps, uh, OA is just a cheap diet club. So for me, when I came into 1961, uh, it was at my mother's uh, suggestion. She'd seen this little blurb in the paper. It was just another diet I had to go into, onto. Uh, all of my life, I had been chubby. Um, and uh, in those days, they didn't have extra large sizes. So they used to have a darling name for uh, clothes for kids that were fat. Not chubby, but fat. Uh, they call them chubbets. Isn't that sweet? So um, I always went to the chubbet department. And uh, when I was 10, I went on my first diet, uh, which was um, uh, a no-fat diet. And uh, I, for a long time, I've never liked eggs, and I could never understand why, except when I remember going there, we were not allowed to use any kind of fat or oil. So my mother would make me scrambled eggs on an iron pan with nothing in it. And I, I guess that, that metallic taste stayed with me all these years, and I still don't like eggs. But at, at 10, I weighed 100 pounds, which to, in today's um, measurement isn't so big for a 10-year-old uh, with our obesity going the way it is. Um, but um, in junior high school, I was the only girl that went into the seventh grade that didn't fit into a skirt and blouse. I was still wearing um, dresses with elastic at the waist, so it would expand with your little tummy. So uh, I always felt out of place. I always felt less than. I always felt left out. Uh, part of that was because I was an only child raised by a very controlling, overprotective mother and an invisible father. And I know that all of you don't come to these rooms because you were raised in loving, supportive, or you're just this thing since sliced bread syndrome. And so my problem growing up was I was never good enough. My mother made it very clear to me that anything less than perfection was unacceptable. So if I came home with a report card with four A's and a B, that was unacceptable. It wasn't good enough. Why didn't I get another A? And so whatever I did, um, uh, it was never good enough, and I always felt less than. No matter what I looked like, there was always a reason why I was less than. At first it was because I was fat, and I thought, well, if I once get thin, then all my problems will be solved. And I got thin a couple of times for 20 minutes. Uh, on my way up, uh, and those were always those diets. I did the diet pills, the shots, the drugs, uh, and we used to call them fat farms. They're called spas now. <laughs> <laughs> but they were fat farms, and uh, they all worked. They all worked temporarily. Like I said, I would go out and buy some new clothes, and within two weeks, none of them fit, and they would all be hanging in the closet with the tags still on them. So for me, it was always the oh, yo, yo, yo. And so when I came into Overeaters Anonymous, um, I didn't get her right away because when I called the name uh, of the contact person, she said, well, our meeting's at the Temple Isaiah and we meet on Tuesday night at 8 o'clock. Whoops, I didn't drive at night. Besides the fact that I was um, insecure, I was very fearful. Um, I was glad I could drive because it took me nine years to get my driver's license. I got my learner's permit when I was 16 and didn't get my license until I was 25 because I was afraid. I, every time I started to learn to drive, I was afraid I was going to kill somebody. And what made me really finally get focused on learning to drive is that the girl who drove me to work uh, all the time uh, had the audacity to get pregnant and stop working. So I had to find another way to get to work. 
unless I wanted to take three buses and a streetcar. So that's kind of the fear level I had before I got here. And so um, I, I said, I can't come. I don't drive at night. So um, I didn't come for a couple of weeks, and I got a call back from her. And she said, you know, we have a young woman who weighs 300 pounds and has no way to get to the meeting. Could you come and pick her up? I said, yes. Well, there was my codependency, but it got me here. I would do it for somebody else, but I didn't have enough self-worth to do it for myself or get over my fear for myself. So my codependency got me to my first OA meeting. And at my first OA meeting, I met Roseanne, the co-founder, uh, and she was like an angel. She was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen, 110 pounds and just gorgeous. And I wanted what she had, but I didn't know how she got it because nobody talked about steps in 1961. They talked about the diet and calling people. And there were steps, you know, we talked about steps, but nobody I knew was doing them because we didn't know what we were doing in 1961. Um, uh, Overeaters Anonymous was a year and a half old, and we had two meetings. We had a meeting here in the West Side, and we had a meeting, one meeting in the San Fernando Valley. And we all kind of clung together in our ignorance, but we started to, to diet and lose some weight. And after I was in the program for about six months, um, I moved to San Fernando Valley, where I still live, and that was like a trek over the Sahara for me. I, mean, I thought that was, the, I had, that was the end of the world. And so I was grateful that there was one meeting, because I was not going to drive over the hill to come to a meeting in Los Angeles. So um, I played around with the meeting for um, the, with the program for a couple of years because I didn't know what to do. I I saw the steps and I said, hmm, some of those look okay. Okay, I can admit I'm a I'm a compulsive overeater. I knew that. I because the first meeting I went to was where I heard people talk about how I ate because I thought I was the only person in the world that ate like I did. Um, I ate everything and anything and any amount I could get. My mother's uh, second husband owned a supermarket. How convenient. And um, he would come home almost every night with two porterhouse steaks and two uh, huge breasts of potatoes. And um, I ate one, you know, 16-ounce porterhouse steak for dinner at night and then had, you know, snacks after dinner and then went out for something else with some with friends for things. So I, was a, I have always been a volume eater. I am a huge eater. And my top weight was 192. My weight today is 126. Uh, I started my abstinence in April of 1964. Don't ask me the date. I don't remember. It wasn't a big deal in 64 to know what date you, you started your abstinence. And I really believe over the years, my primary purpose, I believe, for myself and for uh, Overeaters Anonymous is to obtain and maintain a normal weight. And that was what I have done in this program. And it's, it's been a miracle. I have never been one weight for, I, did, I had never been one weight for 30 years before I came to this program. I had never been one weight for more than 20 minutes. And so for me, I have, my weight has never fluctuated for more than four or five pounds. And so for me, this program has made it possible for me to look like a normal person, to pass like I'm a normal person. But inside, I'm a compulsive overeater and still have all the stuff going on that everybody else did. Um, I thought I had taken the first step when I admitted I was powerless over food, but I really didn't take the first step until I met my first sponsor in 1964. And she said there was a step zero. And I didn't even know. I never, where was it written about the step zero? And in the book, it tells us that the first thing we have to do before the steps is to become willing. To, and become willing to go to any length. Oh, Walter, you're having a terrible time there. Why don't you move your seat? 
I hate to see, I hate, I hate to see you sitting there with, with your hands over your face. Um, and so I then, she said, if you want what I have, and I did want what she had. She was at normal weight. She was also an alcoholic. She was also a person who talked about working the steps. But she was the one who told me that without the steps, away is the cheap diet club. So she asked me if I could admit that I was a, a compulsive overeater, and I said yes. And um, I took the first step with her, and then she asked me if I could come to believe in a power greater than myself. Now, I really didn't have a higher power when I got here. My mother had a higher power, and my grandmother had a higher power. But I never had a higher power because I asked God every single night when I was fat to make me thin, and he didn't do it. So I didn't have much faith in a higher power. But I had faith in her. She said, if you have, do you have faith that I have faith in a higher power? And she was a very spiritual person. And I said, yes. And she says, well, then you can, have, you can come to believe that you will have what I have if you do what I did. So I, I took that second step the best way I could. And then she said, um, now you have to make that decision to turn your will and your life over to that care of that higher power. And what I did at the beginning was I turned my will and my life over to her because I was willing to do what she told me to do. Uh, I didn't like it because she told me to do things I didn't want to do. And so um, I did it anyhow because I wanted what she had. And so she told me that in order to really learn how to work the steps, I had to go someplace else. And I said, where is that? And she said, well, there's this little alcoholic hotel at 3rd in Alvarado called The Ponds. And there's a, there's a man there who's written a book even stricter than the big book. His name is Bob R. And he really has a really unique way of working the 12 steps. And so a bunch of us girls, there were six of us, went down to this dark, dank, kind of spooky alcoholic hotel um, in not a very nice district. But we were willing to go to any length. And so what I learned there was, first of all, you couldn't speak at that meeting until you've written and given away a fourth step. So what a motivation. For a person like, who's a compulsive overeater and who always likes to talk, that was a real motivation for me. So I started writing the great American novel. Um, I didn't know how, what to do or how to do it, so I just started to write. And I carried that spiral notebook around with me everywhere I went. Because I was afraid if I left it someplace, if my husband found it, uh, or whatever my imagination could have thought about, uh, that someone would find it and really write the great American novel. I had all these deep, dark secrets, all the horrible things I had done, one of which I had told you about before. I really had terrible guilt about not going to see my, my grandmother, who I really loved and who cared for me and saved me, really, from my, fa my, uh, my family of uh, origin. And so um, when I finally got to finish it, uh, I was so afraid of what I had written that I didn't even want to give it away to my OA speak, um, uh, sponsor. So uh, I decided to find someone in AA that I would uh, ne never see again because I didn't think after I had admitted all these deep, dark secrets of my life that that person would never want to speak to me. And I chose this uh, alcoholic man, and uh, I... I started reading him my inventory, which was very long. I think the whole thing took about eight or nine hours. But when we got to, to about the fifth hour, uh, I got to the sex part. And uh, he said, would you like my wife to listen to it for you? And I said, well, I've gone this far. What the hell? <laughs> so I gave him my, this part of my inventory. And, you know, my biggest, deepest, darkest, deepest, blah, blah, blah. My deepest, darkest secret, my mouth doesn't work today either, um, was that I had premarital sex. 
Now, that is no big deal today, whoopee. But in, <laughs> but in, 19, in the 1950s, you know, with mother and father knows best, and everybody was supposed to be a virgin when they got married, and everyone got married, and we know was, was uh, Mary Homemaker, uh, that was a big deal. And I, I was really scared to admit that to anybody. And so I admitted it, and I didn't drop dead. <laughs> what do you know? And so um, I gave my fifth step away, and he said to me, are you ready to have these defects of character removed, of which were fear and resentment and gossip and judgment um, and self-seeking and low self-esteem and all the things that all of you are all familiar with, I'm sure, in this room. Gee, I'm clear in the room, huh? <laughs> we have no shade here, huh? No. Okay. It's the hot seat in this section. Uh, and so uh, he asked me in step six, 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 if I was ready to have all my defects of character removed. And I said yes, but I lied because I really wasn't. I love to judge people and I love to gossip and I love to criticize and I love to tell you what to do because I know what's best for you. Sounds like my mother. Uh, and anyhow, uh, he said okay. And um, he asked me to go through the seventh step prayer, which I did. Ask God to remove my defects of character. And several of them were removed that day, which have never returned. And I'm very, very grateful. The first one was I have no longer had the necessity to really overeat again. And you know what? I forgot what the second one was. <laughs> All right. Um, but I was really surprised because it had been the first time in my life, even in the time I was abstaining, that really I didn't have to white knuckle it. I really didn't have to make it hard. It was really easy because I had really asked God to remove that for me and it had never happened uh, for me again. Oh, I remember the second one. How could I have forgotten that I was a shoplifter? I stole every single day of my life like I ate compulsively. And uh, I never got caught, but um, I wish sometimes that I had because I thought it would stop me from stealing, but I bet it would not have, just like going on a diet, would not have stopped me from compulsive overeating. So those two things were removed. I have not had to stop lift since 1964, but I've thought about it, just like I think sometimes about, you know, maybe that little extra would be okay. But I know that that's not, I don't have any action in back of that. Uh, if I really want something today, I know I can afford to buy it, and if I don't have the money to buy it, I don't need it. And um, yeah, that was really a miracle because I had great guilt about stealing. And, I didn't, and a lot of times they stole, not because they didn't have the money, but because I couldn't make a decision. Another one of my defects of character, I could not decide anything. could not decide anything. If I went into the store and had, wanted to buy a blouse, and one was green and one was white, I couldn't decide which one to buy, so I'd buy one and steal one. <laughs> and, my, and my rationale was that um, they made enough money on the first blouse to make up for the one I stole. <laughs> Compulsive overeater thinking. And so I went through that seventh step, and then when I got to the eighth and ninth step, I was really scared. I didn't have a lot of personal amends to make, but I really had a lot of financial amends to make. Uh, by the way, is someone timing me? Okay, and will you tell me at five? Thank you. Um, my biggest um, financial amend was to the Broadway department store on Wilshire Boulevard, which is no longer now, and I think they're building an assisted living place there. I used to joke about they, they had to demolish the place because of all the things they had stolen. Not that I had a big ego. But um, I was told I had to go back to the Broadway department store and return money then uh, with the value of the things I had taken. 
1964, I didn't know what they did with people who came back and made amends for financial things. I didn't know anybody who had done that. And so I went to my sponsor and I said, I don't know if they throw you in jail or not. She says, well, I don't think so, but they might. So uh, I was scared and it took me a while to get to being willing. I kept praying for the willingness to make the amend. And um, I told my husband when I left that he, he, could, he might get a phone call. He might have to post bail. Not that I was being you know, very flamboyant about it. And I was scared to death driving over the, driving over the hill. The 405 is enough to scare you, but, you know, making financial men on top of it is too much. So I got to the, and I had called the store. They had told me to call the store and talk to the manager. Don't talk to salespeople. Don't talk to managers of the department, manager of the, the store. So I went, I said, I have an appointment with the manager of the store. I'm sorry, she's been called away on an emergency. What do I do? Oh, it's a message from God. I don't have to do this. But I said, I've got my hot little chick in my hand. Someone's got to take it. So I went from place to place and I wanted to take my money. So finally some manager in one of the departments said she would. Um, and she said, I was the first person in 1964 who had ever come back in person to make a financial amend. She said there were people who dropped you know, things off in the front of the store anonymously and people who had written checks anonymously. Um, but no one had done that as yet, and I'm sure there had, there's a lot of people that do it all the time today. But for me, that was the first time I had ever done something uh, that I was told to do 100%, besides writing inventory and, st- and besides doing these steps. Because I, am what, I don't pers- persevere very long on things. Overeaters Anonymous is the first thing I've ever really persevered 100% all the way through all the time. And because I always called myself the great half-asser. I start like a shot out of hell, and, I, and about three minutes later, it gets too hard, there's too much work, I don't like it anymore, it's boring, and I put it aside. I don't want to bore you with my eight-year Afghan. But uh, I, was just, I was just telling uh, Jeffrey before the, at the meeting, I'm, doing something, I'm, learning, I'm trying to learn something now called Tai Chi, and it's really hard. And the, the instructor keeps saying, uh, you'll be uh, frustrated and confused, but hang in there. And every time I go to class, I want to quit because I don't like it when it gets hard. And that's what I used to do. When a thing get, gets hard, Maxine runs the other way. Uh, and so uh, in college, when the uh, course got too hard, I dropped a class. But I didn't drop the class here because I knew this was, I didn't, because I yo-yoed so much, I knew I didn't have another diet in me and another yo. Because it was too hard to come back after binging. And so after the ninth step, I had a great relief of feeling better about myself. Uh, first time in my life, I really felt that I was doing the right thing. I never felt I was doing the right thing. I always felt I was a little off. I always felt that I wasn't quite up to par. I didn't, uh, I didn't get the directions. I was in back of the door when they gave them out. That's what I thought about overeating. I thought when God gave out the gene that kept you thin, I was in back of the door because I didn't get the message. And so I always felt that, and I never thought that it had anything to do with me because I didn't do the work. So when I finished my ninth step, it took me quite a few years to make all my financial amends. Some of the people I couldn't find. Um, some of the people um, were, were not there anymore. And I've made living amends by making uh, charitable contributions to many, many charities, and that's the way I can do that. 
the amends that I made to my grandmother is I wrote her a letter of amends and I went to her grave site and I, I read the letter to her and asked her to forgive me and I forgave myself for, not, for having allowed my fear to keep me from doing what was right. And so this program has taught me how to live a life on life's terms. Uh, I don't like it a lot of the time. It makes me uncomfortable. I'm anxious a lot sometimes. My husband said to me, honey, just lighten up. You know, just lighten up. I said, aren't you sad about Barbara? He said, well, I've accepted it. I said, well, I've accepted it too, but it makes me sad. And I can be sad now without having to eat about it. Because when I was, I didn't need an excuse to eat. I mean, sad was a good one. <laughs> um, you know, sad, mad, glad, I mean, didn't make any difference. And so um, I'm really grateful that there's, I don't have to have an excuse to overeat anymore. And so when I got to the last three steps of this program, which were called the maintenance steps, I choose to call them growth steps because maintain means you stay the way you are. And um, I believe in this program, if I, if I stayed the way I was, I would not be able to continue to abstain because there's so much more that I have learned about myself in the last 10 or 15 years that I could never have learned in the, you know, the, the 40, 30, 25 before because I know stuff about myself now and I've learned stuff along the way that has given me the opportunity or the willingness or the insight through all the work that I'm doing to do those things. Um, the 10 step is something that I, I do on a regular basis. Uh, it took me about 20 years to realize that there was a page in the big book that said what you do at night when you retire and what you do in the morning when you get up. I had read it, but it didn't click in for me. In the meantime, by the way, my original sponsor had left Overages Anonymous and uh, I wanted to go with her wherever she was going, and she said, no, you, you're, you're to stay here. And so she was right. I was to stay here. And so for me, um, when I go to bed at night, I used to go through those, um, those, those questions they ask you every night, uh, what, what your day was like. And for me, I, I boiled the, the questions down to two. What did I do today that I feel good about or okay about? And what did I do today that I don't feel so good about? Or what I need? Usually it ends up to be a personal amend. I've opened my big mouth once again. I've nagged my husband about something. I wanted him to do and he didn't do it the way I wanted him to do it, damn it. And um, I've had to make amends about that. And it's gotten harder in the years. Since my husband is, is getting older and he's a little forgetful. And um, he, doesn't things, he doesn't take things as seriously as I do. Um, and that comes from, in my house, there was never mohills or always mountains. So I, I, lived, I, I grew up in a very serious house. There was no laughter and fun in the house. So for me, everything still has to be kind of in order, but I've learned a lot, a lot of it, though. So for me, um, the 10th step is really keeping myself present. I've learned in this program that I can only take care of today. I can't do anything about tomorrow, and I can't do anything about yesterday. I just have to stay in today. And sometimes that's the hardest place to stay, because some days today is really uncomfortable. Today was really uncomfortable. To tell you the truth, I didn't want to come here today. Uh, I've had a hard week. My husband is not feeling well. Um, I'm tired. And I thought, no, this is what I do, because this is what keeps me sane and abstinent. And so uh, the 11th step has been a, a journey for me. People always ask me what my spiritual practice is. And I always tell people I'm a spiritual mutt. I, I've been a lot of places. I've done a lot of things spiritually. I take a lot of things that I like and leave the rest. Uh, in 1975, I was in a spiritual instruction that um, my spiritual teacher said that I needed to leave the rooms because I was becoming too egotistical. Uh, I was. Uh, I was. 
Uh, I was a, a chairman of the Board of Trustees. Um, I was a speaker all, all over the place. Um, uh, I thought I was Miss Hotshot. And she said I needed to leave because I needed to learn humility. And so I left the program for nine years. <clears throat> I, didn't, I shouldn't say I left the program. I left the fellowship for nine years. And I, I continued in my spiritual uh, instruction. And I, I didn't really intend to come back. Uh, what brought me back was in uh, December of 1976 or 75, I don't remember exactly, my daughter contracted toxic shock syndrome. And in those days, young women were dying from that. And we didn't know when she came, became ill that that's what was wrong with her. And uh, she was very seriously ill, and I was really scared and anxious. And I called three women from my ho old home group that I was still in contact with. And I asked them to pray for Robin and myself. And within two hours, those three women came to the hospital and sat with me all night and prayed with me for my daughter's recovery. And she did recover by the grace of God and prayer. And I was so grateful to these women. And that next week, I had calls from a lot of people in my whole home group who knew what was happening, and they were calling to wish me well and, and, and ask if there was anything they could do for me. And uh, I was so grateful that I wanted to go back to my old home group and thank them for what they had done. And when I walked back into my old home group in, I forget what year it was now, uh, 1985 maybe, I think it was 85, um, I knew God had brought me back to Overages Anonymous. Uh, I was still at normal weight. I had abstained while I was gone. I was asked to speak at um, some meeting in Orange County, and then three days later the man called me back and uninvited me because he said when they heard that I had been gone for seven years and still managed to keep my weight off, they thought it would be a threat to the, to the meeting because they thought that would give uh, everybody the okay to go out and do what I did uh, or gain all their weight back. And I said, isn't that interesting? If I had gone out there and gained back 100 pounds and then come back uh, 100 pounds heavier and lost it back in LA uh, in the rooms, it would have been okay. And I said, well, that's my story, and I'm going to say, I've got a better one. I can't do anything about it. And um, that's what I would hope for everybody. I would hope that I could go, and I do go, and when I've traveled, I can go anywhere in the world and abstain. I can always get what I need to eat. I have, sometimes I have to miss a meal. Sometimes the meal looks a little screwy. The worst place for, at that time I was a vegetarian, is in Japan. I mean, Japan is terrible for vegans. I mean, rice is it. There's nothing else to eat except I always carry nuts with me and I can buy, and my big luxury is buying fruit, which is really expensive, but I abstained. It wasn't a big deal. So for me, this program I can carry, it, it, it's a portable program, and that's what this program is. It isn't in the room. It isn't in the tools. It's in, it's in the steps. The steps are what makes this program work. This is the, this step, the steps of this program are the tools for a spiritual journey that enables me to not overeat a day at a time peacefully. And there, there's nothing else that could do that because I tried everything else before this. Um, I feel for myself that the 12th step is, is a gift that I get from this program for my recovery. Uh, I've always been a very selfish person. When I've ever given anything to anybody, I've always wanted... If I do this for you, you do, do this for me. Overeaters Anonymous is where I learned that the greatest gift that I can give is to give without getting anything back or to give without anybody knowing about it. That's the greatest gift. 
And uh, I was doing some 12-step work in a, another workshop uh, several years ago. <clears throat> and um, at the end of the, this uh, questionnaire, at the end of the, the workshop, they asked you, um, if you die today, what would you like on your tombstone? And I said, and it was an optional question. Oh, I don't want optional. I hate optional questions. You have to think about it. And oh, I don't want to think. And uh, and it was like the pink elephant in the room. Once they tell you what it is, you can't stop thinking about it. So I thought, well, if I die today, they say, yeah, Maxine, I, you know, uh, beloved wife and mother and grandmother and um, that kind of stuff. And but I said, what would I really want to say in my tombstone? And then I thought about it. Uh, Maxine, she made a difference in someone else's life. And that's what this, this program has given me, the ability to give a gift to somebody else that was given to me to abstain peacefully, wonderfully, and, and, and with great joy. Thank you for letting me share. You poor guys, I know what you're up against. <laughs> Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No questions? Everybody knows everything? Oh, I scared them all. There was this one. Yes. Hi, thank you so much for your share. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you did the four steps the first time around. I did my four steps the first time around <coughs> in a book called APOR, which was a book that Bob R. had written. Uh, it had... I don't know how many hundred questions that were asked and you had to answer. And that's how I wrote that. I started writing my first inventory that I started to write that I never gave away. By the way, I had to type it. It had to be typed because it had to look perfect. And I never, I never finished it. Guess why not? And so uh, then I found out that that was, that was the way that I did my first inventory. I've done many since that time. And when I do inventory now or 10 step now, I do it according to the big book. And I think people that that seems that is the most e- I feel the most efficient and easy way to do a four step. And by the way, I know now that I used to think the, the four step was the one and only, and it isn't. There's just I've done maybe ten, ten four steps and hundreds of ten steps. Yes. Thank you. Um, You're welcome. How do you work your program today, and how is it different from? Hmm. I do it. Um, I have a lot more uh, um, more regard for the program today than I used to have, mm-hmm. uh, and I think it's more important than I thought it when it used to, than I thought it used to be. Um, and I I um, I have a way of taking sponsees through the through the program, uh, starting with the big book and going through it. And when they do their work, I do the same work along with them. And I read everything that I can read that has to do with the 12 steps, if it's authorized or not authorized, uh, and I get a lot of things out of that. But I, I work along with them because I know that I myself have more insights. You know, they talk about that, you know, the layers of the onion, which is kind of trite. We hear it so much. But it's true because until I can get a, some of those things that block me, because the six and seven step talk about the rocks. And there's a book called Drop the Rock. And, t- and, and they are defects of character. Well, I can't get to what's under the rock until I drop it. So when I finally can drop that rock, then I can see more what's underneath it. And I can do, the work I do now is much deeper and, and I, for my own 
growth than it was early on. And, and I wish I could have done that early on, but I, I was unconscious. I was unconscious. Even in the first 10 or 15 years of the program, I think I was unconscious. And did you have a question? Uh, first, thank you very much. And could you talk about whether or not your plan of eating has changed over the years? Yes, uh, I was a, um, a vegan for 17 years. That meant, uh, you know, no animal products, no dairy products, no eggs or cheese, and all that stuff. And I loved it. But then it stopped working for me health-wise. Um, I've been a, a fanatic carbohydrate abstainer because my first sponsor brought the infamous gray sheet to Overuse Anonymous. <laughs> and uh, I have done that. And um, uh, it is different today. It's, just, it's a little easier. It isn't, I'm not so crazy and fanatic, which is part of my compulsivity. But it has changed. Like my program has changed in a little bit. I, can, I can't eat as much. I hate to tell you this, kids. I can't eat as much as I used to eat. It's just that the road gets narrower. You just can't, the body just doesn't burn as much. So, yes, it has changed. Is there somebody over here? Okay. Okay. Well, you know what? I didn't, yes, I didn't choose anybody from this side of the room. Yes. No, I've gone to every place that I knew of. I mean, I stole there. I have to make an amends there. I stole because I really believe because of indecision and lack of self-esteem. I didn't feel that I was worth it. I wasn't worth $50 for two blouses. I was only worth $25. I didn't deserve it. Thank you.